today, uh, where he completed his hibs under Mufti Mudassir. And mashallah, at the age of just 17, he started his alimiya in South Africa. And mashallah, after completing uh, until Sahih Muslim, and I believe the rest of it over there as well, his darsan is Ami, he then uh, earned his bachelor's at Columbia University, majoring in history. And then he continued his journey of ilm, and Allah subhanahu wa brought him to Chicago. And over here, he's been studying at Dar Qasim. He's an IFTA student at Dar Qasim and a master's candidate at the University of Chicago. And his focus is on late Mughal period and the rise of colonialism in India. Other than that, his primary interest, which you will see through his speech as well, is Hanafi legal theory, Indian Persian poetry, and creative writing. So, inshallah, without further ado, Maulana Sarah Kasir, inshallah. So um, for those who weren't here last time, I wanted to just do a basic uh, brief overview of the first Mughal king, uh, Muhammad Zahiruddin Babur. I have the quotes of um, the great poet Muhammad Iqbal when he visited Babur's tomb in 1935 in Kabul. Uh, he wrote a Farsi ghazal, which uh, I can you know read it to you. He came to Babur's grave, who was buried in Kabul in Afghanistan, which was outside of the, the gamut of the British Indian Empire. And he said, O oh, Iqbal, O oh, Babur, how, how khush nasib are you that you are buried here? That this land is free from the magic of the Europeans, i.e. outside of the British colonial empire. And it's very interesting, Iqbal, you know, comes in 1930 and Babur is buried in about 1530. So it's 400 years later that Iqbal is reflecting on the first Mughal king and the, the, the longest lasting Muslim empire um, in India. And we had sort of to uh, spoken about his arrival from Central Asia, right, as for those who were, who were here last time, he came from which modern-day country? Uzbekistan, right? And I was actually had the, the, the deep privilege to visit his birth town last year. It's on the border of China, Kyrgyzstan, and Uzbekistan, a small town called Anbejan. And um, I visited last year. They had, they had a small museum and, and, and such, but it was, you know, um, incredible to think about how this small, you know, um, Turkic Hanafi boy created the longest-lasting Muslim empire in India, right? This is, you know, Allah's nizam in the word. We rotate the days of, of, of glory and magnificence amongst people, right? And so this is, um, this is sort of between Samarkand and, and Kashgar. Kashgar is the, the capital of the Uyghurs, is where Babur is buried, uh, or where he's born. And then you can see how far... Kashgar is and how far Dili is, right? He rides all the way down. There's no airplanes or trains. He's riding on his horse. And we talk about his exile from Samarkand and Bukhara 
and how he flees into Afghanistan, etc., writes a Hanafi book, uh, a book of law on, on the Hanafi madhab. So think about how a king is also a faqih, and he's also a poet in two languages. Can anyone remember the two languages that he wrote poetry in? Turkey and Farsi, right? His, his most famous Farsi line is... Um, no, 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 no. The, his most famous one is Magudur as Darvishi as Padshahi. Magudur as Padshahi as Darvishi. Don't say that kingship and Sufism are separate. Ma Padshahim vali bandai Darvishim. We are kings, we are, we are slaves of the Sufis. In which Sufi silsila was Babur a part of? The, the Naqshbandis. He was a, he was a, he was a murid of Khaja Ahrar, who was a second generation murid of Bahauddin Naqshbandi, the founder of the Naqshbandi Silsila. So the Mughals are originally Naqshbandi, and primarily they're all Naqshbandi except for Aurangzeb's older brother, Dara Shiko, who was Qadri. He was the only Qadri uh, prince. Everyone else was Naqshbandi, and later on they became Chishti. Anyways, this is the family line up into Babur is a d direct descendant of Taymur. Um, these are some of his coins you can see on the right. Zahiruddin Muhammad Babur. These were coined in Hindustan. Uh, this was we, we, we spoke about his invasion of Hindustan on the battle of the first battle of Panipat, right? There's three battles. The first is Babur, second is Akbar, and third is Ahmad Shah Abdali from Afghanistan. This is the first one. Um, and his battle formation, of which he's only 10,000 Turkic and Pashtun soldiers, and they're able to overcome a hundred thousand army. Uh, that is lorded over by a Pashtun king. So it's a Turkic Hanafi king versus a Pashtun Hanafi king, Ibrahim Lodi. So these are two Sunni Hanafi Muslims who are battling over the sovereignty of Hindustan. Okay. So we're going to start now from his son, Mirza Nasiruddin Humayun. Um, and Mirza, by the way, is a, four, is, a, is a Farsi abbreviation of the title Amir Zadeh. Amir Zadeh in Farsi means son, you have like Chachazad, Mamuzad, we still have those words in Urdu, and Amir means king. So uh, Amir Zade was the son of a king. So you called the prince, the word Shahzada was never really used, it was uh, Mir, Mirza, Mirza, right? And so all of the Mughal princes are called Mirza, not Shahzada. Shahzada is a later term that's used, so it's originally just Mirza. Obviously now Mirza has its own connotations. Um, and uh, this is a portrait of uh, Mirza Nasiruddin Humayun, um, this is something that uh, many Muslims have lost, but uh, one of the first things of which uh, a Mughal sort of prince or a gentleman would learn is Farsi, and then they would learn about the different ajnas of flowers or genera of flowers. So violets, tulips, etc. So seven, eight years old, if you were a Mughal prince, you knew about 30, 40 genera um, of flowers, which is very interesting, right? This idea that you are conquering Gujarat, Bengal, Hyderabad, and you are very familiar with just the sort of uh, natural layout of the land. And this is what it meant to be a cultured gentleman. Um, there was a treatise written in the late 16th century called the Mirza Nama. Um, a Mughal prince said that a lot of uh, North Indian Muslims were sort of feigning to be Mughal princes. And he wrote a, a guide and of ethical conduct in Farsi about how to be, how to act as a Mughal prince. And the first condition was to know four languages, Arabic, Persian, Turki, and Hindi. So you could not be a Mughal prince without knowing these four languages. Now, you know, 
we're luckily we're lucky if a Muslim just knows Urdu. You know, it was at least four, if not more. Uh, and so all of their native languages would have been Turkey. So that was the first language that they spoke at home. Um, we have about 20, 25 words in Urdu that are still just Turkey, not Persian. So words like Qayma, Qayma comes from the Turkish word Qaymaq, which means to mince. Qurma comes from Qurmaq, which means to um, spin around because it was the idea in the Salan. Bawarchi, anything with the last word chi was a Turkish suffix. You have the word kebabchi, afunchi. Uh, also the word zahrili is a, is a Turkic word. These are... It was very few words that made it into, into, into Urdu, unfortunately, because again, the administrative, once Akbar changes language from Turkey into Persian, then the, the influence of Turkey into Urdu becomes very, very minimal. But otherwise, in the first two generations, um, all of the documents are just in, in, in Turkey. So if Akbar doesn't change the language, it's very likely that all of us are speaking Turkish today. It's just these small decisions change you know, the, the, the course of our history, right? Um, and in fact, all of the earlier Hanafi books, we'll have questions at the end if that's okay. Uh, Mona Harun, if yeah. questions um, at the end? Or, I mean, I'm, I, I'm okay with either Jovi or Manzure. I think it's better to keep the questions in the end. So yeah. We'll allow one. Uh, for my, yeah. my understanding was that he's an administrative work even under Babar and Umayyu uh, was in Farsi. Yeah, so. so Nama is in Farsi. Uh, Farsi being the cultural and, uh, you know, language which was considered prestigious and that's what was used by the clerks and all. Absolutely. Um, but it was different with Babur because he came from the Taimuri Empire where um, his own memoir, Waqai Baburi, was written in Turkey. It was translated into Farsi by Akbar and the Humayun Nama, which we will talk about soon, was written by Babur's daughter, Kulbuddin Begum. Uh, the sister of, of Humayun was also written in Turkey. Um, the Farmans were written in Farsi. Uh, but it seems like official correspondence was done in Turkish. Up until, but after Akbar, everything is in Farsi. Yeah, good question though. Um, just really quickly, this is the Maqbar of Humayun. Um, uh, I, was, I was born in a, a Tablighi family and um, Nizamuddin, the Marcos of Nizamuddin is right across this Maqbara. So you cross this and you go to Nizamuddin. And it's very interesting that Hazrat uh, Mana Ilyas Rahmatullahi put the Murakas right across uh, one of the, the, the largest Muslim tomb in Hindustan, which is something to think about. Also, um, everyone knows Mana Abdul Hassan Ali Nadwi, Rahmatullah His father, Mana Abdul Hay Hassan Nadwi, who was a Hassani Sayyid from Imam Hassan radiallahu anhu, has a book. I just reading it yesterday with Mana Bilal um, called Safar Nama in Hindustan. It was a book that he wrote in the early 1900s where he traveled throughout the old, all the Sufi graves. The ulama graves, and he met with Hazrat Mawlana Shid Ahmad Ali in 1905 in Darulun Deoband, and they had conversations. But before that, he stopped um, at the tomb of Humayun, and he offered a very weeping reflection um, in very powerful Urdu vaknaya that we were to read it. But I encourage everyone to read that book. Um, it's a book written in, in half Urdu, half Farsi, Safran Al My Hindustan by Mawlana Abdul Hassan, uh, sorry, Mawlana Abdul Hay Nadwi, Rahimahullah. Um, also, very quickly, um, when the British uh, 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 launched and uh, uh, was taking, the, there was a rebellion in Delhi in 1857, um, and uh, the last Mughal king, Bahadur Shah Zafar, uh, may Allah forgive him, uh, 82 years old, was hiding out in this tomb with his two sons in 1857, and the British came in, 82 years old, um, came in, because he was the last Mughal king, and, and his, his body, his shakhsiyya, invoked a certain political and uh, 
needy uh, charisma, needy in the sense of uh, uh, kingship. And they snatched him, put him on a bullock's cart, and they took his two sons, Mirza Abu Bakr, Mirza Javan Bakht, and, and his grandson Mirza Babar. He was, cut, uh, he was huddling around them. And um, the, the general's name was General Hodson, East India Trading Company. A general took the three sons between the ages of 16, 25, and took them out to the Lal Qila, the Red Fort, stripped them naked, pushed them against the Darvaza, and shot them dead. And uh, to, the, to end the Mughal line. 16 years old princes, the last descendants of Babur, and they found them um, hiding in the Humayun stream. Also, uh, Aurangzeb's old, after Aurangzeb killed his older brother, Darashiko, he buried him um, in Humayun's tomb. We will get to Aurangzeb, inshallah, in February. <laughs> um, just very quickly, um, all, all these miniatures are from the 16th century. These are 500 years old. Uh, most of them were pillaged by the British and brought to the British Museum in the 18th century. So the majority of Mughal artifacts and heritage are actually um, in London and in the Met Museum in New York. So very unfortunate that uh, um, uh, we don't even have access to the majority of books or materials. All of that is mostly in London. Um, uh, so this is uh, Babur celebrating the birth of his son Humayun in Kabul at a Char Bagh. Char Bagh was an invention of Babur based on the eye of the Quran, Jannat and Tajrim al Anhar, or uh, gardens underneath there are rivers. You can see it going, it was an architectural beauty. This is a predecessor, by the way, to the Taj Mahal gardens that Shah Jahan expands and sort of um, uh, uh, crystallizes. But this is the beginning. Humayun has an aqiqah for Humayun in the year, I believe, 1506, 1507, before he launches his invasion in Hindustan. And he names him Muhammad Nasiruddin Mirza. By the way, if I'm not mistaken, every, every Mughal prince and king up until the 18th century is given the first name Muhammad. Um, even Akbar names all of his sons Muhammad, which is something to, to, to remember. Uh, although they're given other names too, but every, every Mughal prince um, is, is given the name Muhammad. Huh? We still do that. Yeah, and it's, it's beautiful. Why not? You know, there's a hadith in Mishkat where the Prophet والسلام, said that whoever, whoever is named Muhammad, and Agar uh, Muhammad Kesat Muhammadiho, then through the barakah of the Prophet's name, they will enter paradise. And, huh? Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll leave the questions for the end, inshallah. This is not supposed to be interactive. Um, anyways, um, so Babur takes Hindustan in 1526, right? And, uh, and he takes Delhi in 1526. In 1529, he becomes extremely ill, right? And he's about 40, 45 years old. And he nominates Humayun as a successor. Now, why is that an issue? In the, in, the, in the Temuri sort of Genghis Khan uh, political theory. Anyone? Survival of the fittest. Sur survival of the fittest. So uh, in this idea that um, everyone had equal claim to the, to the takht. So Aurangzeb famously said, takht ya tabut, either the throne or the grave, right? And this, this will become a problem when we talk about um, not Aurangzeb's succession, but Aurangzeb's grandson, Jahandarja's succession in 1719. Anyways, um, Babur appoints Humayun to the throne. And by the way, this is the first time that, um, and if I'm not mistaken, the only time in the Mughal lineage where there's not, a, there's not, a, there's not political warfare um, uh, um, after the succession. So Humayun comes to the throne, although there is an issue um, that um, one of the Chishti sheikhs wants Babur's brother-in-law, Mahdi Khaja, to be on the throne because they felt that Humayun was not a politically able king. Um, 
that he was sort of um, not capable to, to, to rule in the name of Taymur and Genghis Khan and Islam uh, within Hindustan. Uh, that is pretty much uh, done away with by the time Humayun comes to the throne. Uh, this, is, this is Humayun on the far right. Uh, also, the second thing that, that uh, Humayun has to do, because remember, this is still a Taymuri state, is that he has to divide the kingdom, right? And so it's not that the king owns everything, right? As much as the British wanted everyone to believe, um, every royal brother or every sort of uh, close-blooded uh, family member held some claim. So uh, Humayun uh, dispensed, uh, I believe, Kabul and Kandahar to his brother Mirza Kamran, and he dispensed Multan uh, to his other brother, I believe, uh, Mirza Askari, and his other brother Hindal, which is a Turkish name, Hind India. Al comes from Almak in Turkish, which means to take. After Babur conquered India, he named his son Hindal, which means the India taker, India conqueror, um, as a reflection of his de designs over India. And he gave him Maywat, which is in northwestern India. Uh, and so here, Humayun was able to sort of really expertly navigate um, the, the political tension that, that could have emerged by each brother laying claim to, to the throne, right? Another thing that he has to sort of deal with is that the Sufi sheikhs, who are part of the Mughal political, uh, the Sufi sheikhs, the Qadis, and the Muftis are also part of the elite Mughal class. We'll talk about how Umayyun created a hierarchy uh, between the poets, the Qadis, the Muftis, the, the generals, and the soldiers later on. Um, and he uh, has to also sort of deal with their positions because remember, in the Mughal world, if you were given a position, let's say if you if you were the the Qadi of the Qadi Qadi Askar or the, the the judge of the army, or you were, let's say, the mufti of a city, your role was not permanent. It had to be re reconfirmed uh, by the king after you died or after a certain amount of time, right? So now he has to sort of deal with this, and there are a lot of um, political allegiances that that, that that must be navigated. You also have to remember that the state is only four years old when Humayun takes over, right? Babur takes over in 1526, and he dies in 1530. So it's only a four-year-old state. So imagine this is you know, 1780s America, there's obviously a lot of political tension, a lot of sectarian tension, a lot of ethnic tension. Um, the Mughals have just defeated the Afghans, there's the Rajputs, etc., 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 and Humayun has to deal with a lot of that. Um, um, this is sort of what, what we spoke about. Also, um, there's, there's still one Muslim sultanate left in India, and that's the Sultanate of Gujarat, the, known as the Muzaffarids from uh, Sultan Muzaffar Shah, who was a Rajput convert to Islam in the 13th century. And there's a Sultan of the name of Sultan Bahadur Shah, not the Mughal Bahadur Shah. His, uh, this is the Muzaffarid Bahadur Shah. He is ruling in Gujarat at that time. He's ruling areas of Surat, um, although their capital was in Ahmedabad, which is still a very famous city today in Hindustan. Um, and the entire Western India um, is still pretty much controlled by these Gujarati Muslims. Um, Anyways, and also the Afghans are basically based in the east. But what was really brilliant about Babur was that after he, and many of the Mughal kings would do, would do this, and I think this is where they sort of outstripped the Ottomans um, much more brilliantly, taking from Babur was that every time they defeated a qawm or de they defeated a certain political leader, they would integrate them in their imperium, right? So you would lose the battle, and although Babur, Humayun could have easily killed them, or removed all of their claims to uh, political rule, uh, they would often reassign the Jagirs or the Zamindar back to that same person. So um, after the Lodis, which is the Afghan dynasty, 
loses to Babur, uh, Babur still assigns lands and jagirs. Uh, jagir, uh, the jagir was a Hanafi-based uh, economic system based on the ijara system. For those of so Hanafi fiqh, you have the mujir, you have the musta'jir, um, and it was a it was a rent-free revenue lease, um, and of which you had to provide military capital, but you would receive the ijara or the rent fees of that land of the of the, of the labor class. And he reassigned that to the defeated Afghan dynasty that now had to retreat to eastern India, primarily between Bihar and Bengal. Um, um, as you can see, the orange line is the empire that uh, Humayun, that Humayun in, in, inherited from Babur. Right? So it's pretty much Punjab, northern Uttar Pradesh, Bihar, and then a little bit of Bengal. Right? And, and then a little bit to the south of, of what is today Madhya Pradesh. Okay. So it's not, it's not necessarily a fantastic um, empire in that sense. The red lines are the, from the Ghazawat and the Jihad of Akbar, when he, when he, all the Hindu kingdoms that Akbar conquered, which we will have, need a lot of time to unpack. Um, there are new political developments. Babur's cousin, Sultan Zaman Mirza, because you have to remember that Babur is just one Taimuri prince. Uh, there, there are a dozen Taimuri princes. Babur is the most famous one. There are many princes after the Safavids and the Ottomans take over Iran and Central Asia. All of them now flee to India because Babur is the last Taimuri prince. Now, a lot of these princes from Samarkand, Bukhara, Tashkent, etc., now flee into, into Hindustan, into Agra and Delhi. Now, a lot of them are like, okay, Babur was successful, but I am also a descendant of Taimur. So I now also have a claim to this area because Taimur had conquered Hindustan, right? In 1402, 1403, although he had massacred the population. Um, and he, uh, a lot of the descendants of Taimur were, especially Sultan Zaman Mirza, and there's another prince that we will talk about, were like, why is Humayun more entitled to rule than me, right? And so a lot of them now flee to Gujarat under the rule of Sultan Bahadur Shah. So you can see there's these shifting of political allegiances, right, between different Sunni Muslim rulers and even Hindu rulers, um, you know, the Gujarati Muslims, the Afghan Muslims, the Turkic Muslims, and the Hindu converts to Islam, which are part of the Rajput dynasties in Chitur and Jaipur, etc. Anyways, um, Sultan Zaman Mirza flees to Gujarat, and Humayun presses Sultan Bahadur to give up Sultan Zaman Mirza, who is his first cousin. Sultan Bahadur refuses, and, and Humayun finds this unacceptable. He marches on Bundelkhand, and there is an exchange between them where Sultan Humayun writes a letter to Sultan Bahadur Shah saying that you need to give this guy up. And Bahadur Shah writes a very disrespectful letter. And Humayun is basically like, this is unacceptable. As the king of Hindustan, you owe your loyalty to me, and, and um, this, is, this is a rebel from my state. Right, so now Sultan Humayun, because of this basically very bay at the letter, marches on Gujarat, first going into Malwa, which is Bundelkhan. Uh, Bundelkhan was, was ruled by Rajputs at that time. Most of the Rajputs uh, uh, obviously are not Muslim. Even, I believe, when partition happened in 1947, the state of Rajasthan was only about 30% Muslim, although Rajputs were the most loyal soldiers in the Mughal armies. So most of the time, Mughal conquests happened in Dakkan and in Afghanistan, happened under Rajput generals. Raja Jai Singh, Raja Jaswant Singh, etc., etc. Thousands of Rajputs, Hindu soldiers gave their lives 
um, in Mughal Islamic causes, which is something to, to discuss later on. Um, obviously, they were paid very, very well. Um, the Rajput Confederacy soon offered tribute and announces the sovereignty of Delhi. So, so Humayun invades these Rajput towns. The Rajput give their uh, very temporary sovereignty because then they will sort of uh, uh, withdraw later on. And only in the time of Akbar do the Rajputs become so loyal to the Mughal Sultana that even when the British come, the Rajput side with the Mughals over the British. Um, and in the same moments that Humayun is now marching onto Gujarat, the Afghans now raise their flags because now it's, this dynasty is only four years old. Why are they, why are, why are they more or more entitled to rule than us, right? So, and again, this is not to say that why are Muslims fighting Muslims? I mean, um, we can think about Sultan Salahuddin Ayyubi who more than half of his life he was fighting Muslim dynasties before he became the ultimate ruler, right? I think about 20, 25 years, he's the only fighting Muslims before he started attacking crusaders to sort of um, consolidate his, uh, his authority in the Muslim world. So he first invades three Muslim countries, and then he invades uh, the crusading kingdoms, right? And that's important because people, people forget that. Um, anyways, um, Sher, uh, Sher Shah Suri, uh, who is a Jagir Dar, again, part of the same Ijara contracts uh, with the Mughals, and a former member of the uh, previous Muslim dynasty of India, the Lodi dynasty, um, consolidates his authority in Bihar and Bengal. Okay? And he is able to actually defeat Sultan Junaid Barlas, um, who is the governor of Bihar that Babur and Humayun had put, and he defeats him. Okay, so now Humayun is sort of in between two, two, two rebellions, right, at the same time. Um, really quickly, I wanted to just touch on Humayun's political authority. Um, this is a chart that we learned. By the way, there are about three or four sources that we, uh, that we take from Humayun's life and stories. They're all contemporaneous. One is called the, uh, one is called the Humayun Nama, written by his younger sister, Gulbadan Begum. The other is the Akbar Nama, written by his son, uh, written by his son's courtier, because Akbar was dyslexic, uh, Abul Fazal. And uh, the third source is Mirate uh, Iskandari, which was a history of the, Gujar of the Gujarati Muslim kingdom. Other books are Tabakati Rashidi, Muntakhal Lubab, etc., etc., etc. These are all written in Farsi, although there is one written in Turki. Um, and these are histories that were written, you know, during Humayun's era, again, showing that um, history was a very, very important way that Muslims understood themselves. From what I know, every great Muslim king had official historians, Mu'arrikhin, you know, Sultan Fatih Muhammad, Sultan Bayezid Yildirim, Sultan Salim Yavuz, uh, obviously, Aurangzeb Alamgir, Sultan Mahmud Ghaznavi, uh, Sultan Alauddin Khilji, uh, the, the Mamluk King, Sultan Babers, etc., etc. You know, you can name dozens, if not hundreds, of them. This idea that, 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 and they always started their history books with one of two Quranic verses. One was uh, the, from the last page of Surah, Surah Yusuf. And um, the, the, the second ayah is. Um, in Surah Muhammad, what is it? One of those, one of those different ayat. And then the third ayah was, Last page of Surah Hud. That these are the stories that we narrate to you, O Prophet, والسلام, to strengthen your heart. And this idea um, to remember that uh, all of the stories in the Quran are about the past and not about the future, which is something to, to think about. Anyways, um, 
this was a, a bureaucratic hierarchy created by Humayun. Uh, the first was obviously the Badshah category, then was Ahle Dawla, then Ahle Sa'ada, and then Ahle, Ahle Murad. Um, the Badshah category obviously was him and his immediate family. The second was Ahle Dawla. This is for the military generals, the Qadis, the Muftis, um, and the elite Mansabdars. Um, and and he in every category, he had someone to manage them from a different class. So that you could say, you know, in American constitutional theory, we have systems of checks and balances. Um, so he had um, a Hindu convert uh, named Shujauddin Ahmed Hindu Beg, who was a Rajput Hindu convert, managed the Ahle Dawla, which were the, not manage in the sense to, you could say a Nazim of sorts, and someone who's making sure that everything is running smoothly, of the Ahle Sa'ada, which were the, the, the poets, the architects, um, the painters, and other people of literary tastes, what we say as uh, Ahle Fan, um, that was known as the Ahle Sa'ada, and he had a Hanafi Mufti uh, oversee that, because sometimes we know that they can be a little bit too much, named Mulana Bargali or Mulana Fargali, right? And then the third category was the Ahle Murad, which were people of the third administrative bureaucratic category. Um, and this was sort of, you can think about uh, the, the dar, um, the gatekeepers, the Darban, etc. The, the lower level soldiers in, in the Mughal army, obviously you had a different, very multi-layered class. Uh, don't have much time to get into that, but that was sort of the, the lower level armies, the Sipah Salar and the Sawari and the, the, the what, do you, what do you call the foot soldiers? Um, the Biada. Biada, yeah, yeah. I was thinking of Beid al-Jamaat, but that's, that's something different. Um, this is, and then in each category, he had, he created 12 different divisions, right? So in the 12th was obviously Humayun himself as the Badshah, as the Hakim. And remember, much of his political theory, he's taking from Hanafi fiqh texts, namely Fatawa Tatarkhaniya, which was the Indian Hanafi fiqh text of the 13th century, Fatawa Firushaiya, um, the Dakhira Burhaniya of uh, Ibn Maza al-Bukhari, um, as well as, um, uh, uh, what is the Fatah of Mullah Ali Qari? Forgetting the name. But basically, these are um, some of the major Hanafi um, uh, tools by which he is deriving political theory. So, fiqh is not just fiqh, it also becomes politics, um, especially for the Mughals and the Ottomans and the Mamluks. Um, anyways, he has the, uh, these, uh, these different categories. So, obviously, it's him. And then it's his brothers and the and the sort of the Khandan, right? The word Khandan is a Mughal word. Khan means the king or the, the person uh, who is ruling. Dan from Danistan, Maidana, Midani, Maidani, to know. So everyone who knows the Khan, right? Everyone who knows a sort of the patriarch, Khandan. Um, and then in the in the right after the category of the Badshah were the ulama, right? And because the idea of the ulama, they are the the bureaucrats and the legal theorists and legal philosophers. So they are sort of proposing ideas, right, for the, for the strength, the sovereignty, and the solidarity of the political state, right? And so when we think about this, like, you know, they built an empire. Um, so you, you, you can see other stuff, the tahwil dars, the munshis, et cetera, et cetera. So you had to have literary culture, political culture, theological culture, artistic culture, all of this is part of um, these are some of the names. Um, also, very quickly, Humayun um, between the different rivers in Hindustan. Uh, you know, you have the Jhelum, you have the Janab in Punjab, you have the Ganges, uh, the, and you have the Yamuna in northern India, you have the Krishna and the Narmuda in the Dakkan. 
And between all of these rivers, he, he created sort of these, baza these floating bazaars on ships. So you would have multiple ships, and in these ships you would have two, three-storied bazaars, and not just bazaars, even mashids and stuff, to sort of do floating or moving da'wah, right? And so, and so it's sort of the, the Hindus, um, instead of necessarily just coming to Delhi and Agra, seeing the beauty of Islam um, through these floating masjids on ships, on these rivers, um, and there would be charity offered, there would be langar, langar is a Punjabi word that means like free food, that seeks you, although they, they, they did get it from the Mughals, um, and it was like free food, free, uh, free sadaqa, obviously, because you can't give zakat to non-Muslims. Um, so you have, and obviously you had sort of like floating azan, so it was this very um, uh, creative way of uh, creating commerce, because you also had bazaars of creating masjids, um, and not just to keep them in these major imperial cities like Delhi, Lahore, and Agra, because these are the three major Mughal cities, and then Hyderabad will become the fourth um, when Aurangzeb conquers it in 1682. Uh, but, uh, and then to sort of create, um, you know, uh, Hanafi Sunni Muslims um, at the, at the, as the, as the what, we, what would they would say, the Sarab Parasti, or the, the, the supervision of it, right? So you have all of these names, Amir Hassan, who was Amir al-Salah, Ziauddin Nur Beg, Amir al-Zaka, Amir Raza, Amir al-Som, Amir Ayub uh, Toshakchi, Amir al-Hajj, Amir Qasim Muhammad Khalil, Amir al-Lutf, so um, Sadaqa, Amir Baba, Aishaq Agha, Amir Ghazab, which is a, a, a criminal law or punitive measures, Amir Shah Hussein, Amir Faragat, Khan uh, Amir, Amir Al Akbar, sort of journalism, uh, what we say as Khabar um, uh, uh, Navisi, that's what they would say, the Khabar Navisi are writing the Khabar. Um, this is, uh, so he had this idea of drums, um, and again, remember um, in Hanafi fiqh texts, uh, drums, uh, according to Imam Abu Yusuf radiallahu anhu um, in Kitab al-Athar as well as Imam Muhammad narrates in Kitab al-Asl and Ziyadat mentions that um, as a political ruler you can use the, the duff as, as a way to announce political announcements as, and in war and in weddings. These are the three occasions that Imam Abu Yusuf did the juiz or uh, allowed for it. Um, and so he created um, uh, certain drums after different salahs and different times of the day to um, uh, sort of uh, project political, Mughal political authority. Really, really important. Much, because you, you have to remember that our Indian, Pakistani, Bengali, Muslim values don't emerge out of a vacuum. Many of these adab and akhlaq and tahzeeb come from the Mughals. So one practice that Humayun established, as in Hyderabad we know the word adab, but that actually comes from a Humayun practice called taslim. You had Taslim and Qurnish were a little bit different, although in Hyderabad it becomes transforms into something a little bit less formal. But it was basically where you would you had your hand here, and then you would raise it to your face and you would say Taslim. It became Salam or Adab later on, but Humayun made sure that um, there was a respect given to Muftis, Qadis, and the Khandan, the Mughal Khandan. So now you had to have uh, uh, you know have a certain adab, right? Anzilun Nasa, Manazilahum as the Maqouf of Hadith of Hazrat Aisha radiallahu anha in Sahihain mentions. Um, how much time do we have? Okay. Um, and um, coming back to the conquests of Humayun, Nasiruddin Humayun Mirza. So now Sultan Bahadur has uh, basically all of Western what is today in the state of Maharashtra, right? So you have Bombay, Surat, Ahmedabad, 
parts of Ahmad Nigar, Birar, etc., etc. Um, this is a painting from the 1600s, from the Akbar Nama, of Sultan Bahadur's escape into Gujarat because Sultan Bahadur wanted to meet Sultan uh, Humayun in Malwa, which is in Madhya Pradesh, but he uh, a battle takes place, which, which we will talk about in a moment. Um, very quickly, I just wanted to talk about um, Humayun as an alim. Um, basically, the majority of the Mughal kings um, had an education equivalent to an alim or a maulana in the sense of uh, they studied Arabic, Persian, Turkish, uh, poetry, fiqh, tahzib uh, al-akhlaq. Um, they didn't study hadith intensively because um, hadith only becomes an important study after Shawliullah in 1745, I want to say, after he comes back from the Haramain. So the average Mughal alim would become an alim after studying Mishkab. But every Mughal prince would basically have the same education as an alim back then. And obviously because the only education was a Malana education, right? There was no education outside of it. Although in India, there was the Brahmin education, but to access it, you had to be a Hindu Brahmin, right? You couldn't be a Shastri or a Dalit, to, to, and that's why the, 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 the Brahmin is abundant, right? He's a scholar, and Muslims do not have access to that, nor, nor did other Hindus. Um, but it's also really important um, is that Humayun uh, was really into Farsi and Turkish poetry, but really into astronomy. Um, and so right at the bottom right, you can see his astrolabe. Right, and this is obviously before Europe has discovered the astrolabe, right? When that becomes into the, and then you also have its sister, which is the compass, right? So the astrolabe helped with almun nujum or astronomy, and um, in fact, Humayun's library was so massive um, that it, that they 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 couldn't haul it um, between one city and another city, right? And um, one of the most unfortunate things. Um, is that when people talk about the, the, the violence of, of the British in Hindustan, the last thing they mention um, is, is their pillaging of our, of our manuscripts and our books and our sources of knowledge and what the Muslims produced um, in India uh, in terms of intellectual culture, which is uh, really devastating. And I always mention this, is that there are more Arabic and Persian books written just in the cities of Delhi, Lahore, and Hyderabad than in the cities of Isfahan, Kabul, Herat, Baghdad, and Damascus during the Mughal era. And um, just in the Salar Jung Museum of Hyderabad, there are about 300,000 Arabic and Persian manuscripts that are un unpublished, untouched, and something to, to think about. And remember, Muslims have always been a minority in India. So um, the, the Indian and the South Asian ta'kid on ilm is not something new. It's, it's always been there, and it's our um, um, it's an inheritance that you know I am obviously very, very proud of, um, and I think that our ulama have done an incredible job of maintaining. There is no Shawliullah without that 200 years of Mughal patronage of knowledge. Even Akbar gave, I mean, so much of his revenue to, to ulama and Sufis in terms of uh, building Islamic institutions that we still have farmans that are moth-eaten, but they are still go back to Akbar. Um, and this is really, really important um, to create. Also, um, uh, the turbans are very, very important too, because as you know, in the Hanafi Madhab, it is sunnah ghair mu'akkada to, to wear a turban. And um, uh, other than Akbar and Jahangir, it seems that every Mughal king always wore a turban or an amama in public. <sighs> Sorry. Um, this is uh, a miniature actually from the from the siege 
that Sultan Humayun did of the of, of one of the forts in Gujarat, I believe uh, Cambay or uh, Champina, one of these forts in Gujarat. And um, basically many of these political rebels are now seeking a refuge in Bahadur Shah's court. So he now presses on to Gujarat um, and uh, Sultan Bahadur Shah realizes that he doesn't have the wherewithal to uh, basically fight against this Turkic army. And um, I wanted to mention a little bit about the great uh, Ibn Khaldun, his idea of history and sociology, but we don't have time for that. But um, in terms of an Islamic methodology to history, it's really important to have our own methodology. I mean, I spoke about this a lot last time, but you know, I want to focus a little bit more on the uh, political military details of, of Humayun here. But uh, Humayun, you have to remember that he is, he's not born in India and he's not raised in India, right? Sultan Humayun is literally born in the exile of Babur, right? So he's known, uh, you know, he doesn't really know comfort in the same way that later Mughal kings will know. He is born as someone who is sort of lachad, right? The, the Mughal, there's no Mughal state and his father is fleeing um, and he still has that sort of Turkic gruffness. So um, they wouldn't stay, um, they wouldn't spend more than, you know, a night in one place. In fact, it, it seems that every Mughal king um, up until Aurangzeb's grandson, Jahandar Shah, never spent three or four nights in one place. And Allah Iqbal has this really great poem in Farsi where he talks about the Ibn Khaldun notions of mobility, where he says, Hastam agar, um, hastam agar ravam, nistam naravam. That I exist if I move, if I don't move, I don't exist. Hastam agar, from hast, from hast, we have the word hasti in Urdu. Hastam agar ravam, nistam naravam. And this idea that Iqbal wants to mention that one of the significant sources of of political decline in Muslim India is that Muslim Indians stopped moving. And um, we can, you know, obviously as a child of Tabligh, you know, um, this idea of moving and mobility is very important to Hazrat Mulana Ilyas, right? Harkat me barkat. And when you read the Mughal Empire and the successes, one of, I mean, uh, they say Aurangzeb's son never spent more than four hours in one place. He was just, he just kept on moving. And this idea that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts a lot of barakah in that and that, you know, Mona Rumi has this poem where he says that every prophet was either exiled or intentionally left his homeland. What did Sayyidina Yusuf alayhi salam, Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam, the Holy Prophet alayhi salatu was salam, um, Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam, Sayyidina Nuh alayhi salam, Sayyidina Adam alayhi salam is obviously you know, created in paradise and comes down into earth. Um, and there's a sunnah in this idea of moving, right? And constantly being moved. So, you know, when, when, when Humayun moves from Delhi to Gujarat, I mean, this is like th three, four hours of rest and every namaz are praying with jama'ah. Um, really, really quickly, you know, um, I hope in the Akhir Afambirim he doesn't, you know, scold me for mentioning the story. But um, after he conquers Ahmedabad, he, uh, uh, he, he, the first thing that Sultan Humayun would do, he would go into the library and pick out manuscripts, right? Because it's Mali Ghanima. Um, and it was allowed, obviously, in all the madahib for, for Mali Ghanim because the, these were uh, Tawaghi and, 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 ba, and Baghun. So um, he finds a manuscript of the Zafarnam. Does anyone know what the Zafarnama is? It's one of the most printed books in Islamic civilization. I mean, hundreds of thousands of copies exist from Morocco to India across five, six hundred years. Four or five Adama here, nobody? Zafarnama? Zafarnama was, was, a, was a Persian political book written by Hanafi Muftis and advised by Sa'iduddin Taftazani, the author of Sharh al-Qa'id in Farsi for the rule of Taymur, right? Because Taftazani is the court theologian of Taymur al as is Sayyid Sharif Jurjani, the author of Sahibul uh, of Mawaqif. 
Um, anyways, uh, so um, Homayun finds a copy of the Zafarnama, and it's an original manuscript, right? And obviously, manuscripts have their own stories of traveling. Um, anyways, this the rise of Temur is a very fascinating rise. We, I, I honestly should have done a lecture on Temur first before Babur, but I was unsure how people would receive, you know, these Mughal lectures considering the stereotypes. But um, he he uh, is able to conquer a, a vast amount of land. In fact, to my knowledge, no Muslim king conquered as fast as Taymur, except for Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anh. So it's Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anh right after this Taymur illa, in terms of just the speed and the, and the, the, the sheer kilometers of land. Um, and not even Taymur was as, you know, obviously successful as Sayyidina Umar radiallahu Anyways, um, 40 soldiers of this Mughal army read this book around a bonfire. And they're like, wow, this is amazing. And they, what they do is they, they leave the army and they're like, if Taymur could do this with 40 men, like we, we can also sort of achieve this. So they sort of head out and they start uh, try to conquer towns without the political consent of Humayun. And you can think about the city in terms of modern sort of uh, Muslim outfits who do these acts without any political authority. Um, and Humayun is incredibly angry. He asked, where, where are these soldiers, right? So these 40 soldiers went out to see, like, if Taymur did this, we can go, we can do this too. So they go out to Hyderabad. Hyderabad is still um, a Hindu city at that time. So they're like, you know what? We're going to go take Hyderabad, right? And these 40 soldiers without any, any consent with the political hierarchy, political authority. And this is one of the few times in Islamic history where these bands of sort of Muslims do, do extra uh, uh, terrestrial violence, right? Uh, or extra state violence, and Humayun finds them, and this is not sanctioned by the way in Islamic law to just go pick up arms without you know political authority and just start conquering. This is not sanctioned, you know. And Humayun takes all forty of them. Find, he spends two days. He leaves a bit, he leaves his his hisar or the, the siege of this of this fort, Kambina uh, or Chambina, and he takes them and he finds them, and he has all forty of them trampled by his elephant. And because of the fact that he said that this is, this is uh, uh, an incredibly uh, uh, violent and un-Islamic act to just go out and start conquering you know, without any political consent from your king. And so this was recognized that Muslims never did stuff like this. Right? And if they did, they were duly punished. Um, they had a Hafiz come and lead the namaz of Maghrib. And guess which surah he recited in the first rakat? Huh? <laughs> and Humayun thought it was a slight against him. You know, and obviously this is a world where every, every, every king knew Arabic, right? You couldn't be a Muslim king without even understanding the Quran, right? And this is, you know, we have, we have if any of you guys know the, the book Kafia, the advanced Nahaw text, we have um, multiple Kafia texts that date back from Mughal kings, not ulama from Mughal kings especially Shah Jahan and his, uh, his father, Jahangir. So uh, this is the, these are important stories to remember. That, uh, and also, Humayun punishes the Hafizab, you know, Bichara Gujarati Hafizab, Sufya Malum Hota, you know. Anyways, uh, Humayun is able to defeat uh, Sultan Bahadur in the army. And again, they are bringing new military tactics that Babur had brought in from Central Asia that the Indian Muslim kings did not know. Uh, namely the flanking tactic uh, they had spoken about last time, but basically you fake, uh, uh, it's, it's called like the pincer attack, where you fake an excursion here, and then you have your light cavalry 
sort of hide behind and then flank them from the left while all of their army is sort of um, focused and their tawajjuh is here. And Humayun sort of repeats those tactics, but also uh, Sultan Salim Yavuz, the Ottoman king, had sent two Ottoman engineers and had brought new um, artillery and cannons. And this is really how the Mughals are able to take fort by fort by fort. They had never seen such cannons before in their lives. But again, this, this would be turned on them when the British come and they, the, the Mughals had never seen the cannons that, that uh, you know, the East India Training Company had brought. These are also, um, you know, you, you, you can sort of see what's going on. Um, I tried to find miniatures with the, that, that had the faces covered out. Um, this is one of the few that I found. But basically, they have um, the, the drawbridge. A lot of them, the, the walls were too high to scale, so they would have the drawbridges to come in. Obviously, you had cannons, you had armies. One of the major ways, basically, to conquer a fort was just to strap it in terms of aid that you would launch a siege for a couple of months and just hope that their supplies would run out and they would open, and someone, one of the generals would open the gates and you would sort of walk in. Um, anyways, uh, Humayun uh, advances to Ahmadabad, right? And uh, he hands it off to his brother, Mirza Askari, because there were four brothers, right? Gamran, Hindal, Humayun, and Askari. And they're part of the Khandan. So he hands off the city to, 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 to Mirza Askari, and he heads south because Sultan Bahadur Shah is fleeing. Now, Sultan Bahadur Shah courts whose aid in Goa? The Portuguese. The Portuguese are right, they're the first Europeans in India. And, you know, uh, Zuhair is not here, but we're just having a conversation. Every, it seems that every Muslim king who courted European or non-Muslim aid died a really terrible death. Uh, Sultan Bahadur Shah uh, courted Portuguese aid, of which they were able to push back Humayun, because the Goa is here, right? And it's, 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 on this, it's, it's on the western guts of India. And he courts Portuguese, and they're able to push back Humayun. Um, in fact, Humayun has, has to flee Ahmedabad, because the Portuguese fleets are coming, and, and the Europeans are, uh, you know, have a much superior navy than the, than the Mughals. Um, and then, but the Portuguese are like, wait, we gave you help, we're now going to rule Gujarat. And Bahadur Shah is like, wait, no, what do you mean? And so the Portuguese are like, wait, uh, we're going to throw a feast in your honor. And they throw a feast in the honor, and then they execute Sultan Bahadur Shah. And, I mean, you can see this throughout, throughout Islamic history. I mean, Mirza Ja'far in Bengal, um, some of these Ta'ifa uh, kings in Andalus, um, uh, Jem Sultan, who is the brother of the Ottoman king, uh, Bayezid, all these people who courted European help, Khasir al-Dunya wal-Akhirah, you know. Of which most of the Mufassirin say that, you know, this is about political assistance and political authority. And I mean, you can see that in dozens and dozens of scenarios where any, whenever Muslims courted European help against other Muslims, they died really, really humiliating deaths. I mean, um, the Portuguese, in fact, were so proud of it that they even drew a painting. So the, the guy in the red in the bottom right, that's Sultan Bahadur Shah. And that these are all the Portuguese on the ships. You know, that's... Obviously, you know, he died a Muslim, and we still pray for his forgiveness, because in rahmati wa si'at kulla we don't um, pass judgment on anyone in terms of their akhirah. But, um, I mean, there, there is an ibrah to be learned, for sure. Um, we're going to end a little bit early, but I just wanted to briefly talk about um, the Inqilab-e-Afghanan, as it's mentioned in, in uh, the earlier Mughal text, 
Um, as we mentioned, um, the eastern side of India was still sort of politically ruled by the Afghans. And um, as Humayun was centralizing his authority in Gujarat, he, he, he sort of leaves that area open. And the Afghans are still hurt, right? And there's this Asabiya, there's this Qawmiya amongst the Afghans in, in Hindustan. And um, the Afghans had started coming to Hindustan in the 12th century. Um, it started my because it's again you you go through the Khyber Pass or you go through Kandahar in the south and Hindustan, you know the plains of Punjab are, you know, lead you straight into straight into Delhi and Rajasthan, right? Um, and that's the same pass that, that Babur took from Kabul into Peshawar and then into Lahore. Anyways, um, there were tens of thousands of Afghans in northern India, and uh, you know, and mainly Pashtuns, by the way, some Tajiks, but mostly Pashtuns, and obviously you know tribal loyalties played a huge role. And the Afghans were unhappy by Mughal rule, basically in the sense of, again, the Mughals are not stronger than us. We are more fit to rule. We have been long, we have been ruling longer than they have. Why are they ruling over us? So there is a small zamindar named Sher Shah Suri. He comes up and he starts collecting Afghan authority around his figure. So different Afghan zamindars are like, you know what? We like you more. We're gonna pay homage to you, right? This is a miniature of him that was painted in the 16th century. Um, you know, this idea that, uh, that even lions came and did bayat to him. That was his, his figurehead. Um, anyways, Humayun comes back from Gujarat, um, recollects his forces in Agra, because Agra is the capital. Uh, Jah Shah Jahan is the one who makes Delhi the capital, names it Shah Jahanabad. But Agra, which was named Akbarabad um, by Akbar, is still the capital of Hindustan. And he meets him in Bengal, right? Um, and you can see these different battle points that they're skirmishing across. Again, the mobility, the, the haraka of these armies is, is extremely wild, right? Because they don't have airplanes, they don't have tanks. They're just moving on horseback. And these are, you know, 40, 50,000 strong armies, you know, that are just moving across, you know, um, unfamiliar Indian territory across northern um, and, and northeastern India. And this is why the Rajputs in the north and the Hindus in the south are, are awestruck of how fast Muslims can move. Right and, and and how they're because nobody is really able to do it. Even Ashoka was not able to conquer Muslim land, to conquer Indian lands in the same way that Muslim kings were. Because um, and you can sort of think about you know just the, the life of a Muslim, right? You have to you have to wake up for Fajr every day. You know you have to do wuzu five o'clock in the morning. You have to sort of you have all these different loyalties. You have all these different zimadariya, et cetera, et cetera. It's going to create a very different subject, right? And this is this idea of al badada min al iman. Right? That sadgi is from Iman because it leads to this sort of azade um, nafs or this, this, um, this, uh, this freedom or this uh, movement of the soul, right? To be less attached to the dunya. Anyways, um, uh, Humayun faces Sher Shah Suri in two battles, the Battle of Chosa and the Battle of Kanoj. And uh, Humayun's older brother, Kamran, Kamran Mirza, uh, refuses to help Humayun in hopes that he would gain the throne. Right? And again, this nafsaniya manifests itself in all stages of Muslim political history. We should not be shocked. We should not be surprised by it. Bahai, bahai ki darmiyan. I mean, Surah Yusuf teaches us that. And Mirza Kamran is supposed to bring in an army of 20,000 because um, the Mughal king did not have allegiance of the entire army. So, for example, Aurangzeb's army was about 700,000 strong. But each contingent of about 20,000, 30,000 soldiers was under a mansabdar or a general. Right? And so you had to have the affections and the loyalties of each of the individual generals in order to sort of bring about an army of seven, 800,000. But anyways, he loses the battle through a share, through uh, Shir Shah Suri adopts the pincer attack of the Mughals and turns it against them. 
And um, this is uh, the, the battle formations you can see on the, on the uh, Karam Nasr River. On the left, you have the Shir Shah, the, Shir Shah, the Afghan army. On the right, you have the Mughal army. And one of the unfortunate decisions that Humayun did was that um, the Afghans had marched all the way from what is present-day Dhaka, or uh, what later on become Jahangir Nagar. And um, the Mughals had only marched from Agra, and the Afghans were a lot tired. And uh, Humayun's advisor, political advisor told him, that, look, hey, these guys are super tired, advance. And he's like, no, let's, let's check the situation. And again, this sort of um, this hesitancy, this tawaqqaf, really cost him. He loses the battle. And only in the second battle of Kanoj, where he's fleeing, um, basically, he loses the battle decisively. And he, um, he hops into the river. Um, and he's able to escape with about 20 of his men. And he uh, flees into Iran. And the Mughal state sort of ends. And Shir Shah Suri, who is a Hanafi Sunni Pashtun, um, takes over and um, uh, starts his rule. We're gonna, we're gonna end there for today because it's a lot of information um, and I don't, I don't, I don't wanna overwhelm uh, too much, especially in the beginning. And, and there's, there's not much to say when he ends. So next month we'll do inshallah Akbar, but there's a lot, a lot, a lot to say. He's, uh, Akbar rules for about 56 years. Um, there's a lot of uh, political, religious developments. Obviously we have these notions of Akbar is bad and Aurangzeb is good and I wanna just, um, not make any judgments, that's not what historians do, but just rather ask questions. And um, you guys will make your own judgments. That I, I will start off with, uh, with um, Iqbal's political evaluation of Akbar in his dissertation that he wrote in 1908 in Heidelberg in Germany um, on Akbar called The Metaphysics of Persia, where he has a reflection. Um, and uh, we'll start from there, but we will be using a lot of the, the Farsi chronicles um, of Akbar next, next month so that we can just have a better understanding because the reality um, is that Muslims are being killed in India over Mughal history, which is wild to think about, right? When, when, when Muslim women were being raped in Gujarat in 2002, uh, many of the Hindu nationalists were shouting, you know, Aurangzeb, Aurangzeb, Babur, Babur. And the, the reality is what happened is that Muslims lost this idea to relay their own history, and Hindu nationalists and Hindu fascists came along and told our own stories about us, right? And we have lost... Uh, this ability to, to, to relate our own stories. And you can see um, history is one of the most prized disciplines uh, for the Mughals. It was basically fiqh, uh, fiqh, poetry, history, and astronomy were the four major disciplines that the Mughals patronized. Um, and, you know, I would say out of those four, maybe one survives today, and that's fiqh, you know. But as Muslims, the Holy Prophet, والسلام, in the words of Iqbal, said that the Prophet's breath is able despite he's an ummin, unlettered man, produced, you know, sparked more writing and more books than any other civilization. And this is one of the miracles of the Holy Prophet, alayhi salatu wasalam. Jazakallah khair. If anybody has any questions, we can, we can stop there, inshallah. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that you have interest in uh, uh, Farsi literary. Yeah, yeah. Is there some place where we can get some of those things? Like, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, are you looking for Farsi books with translations? Are you looking for just like the old manuscripts? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. So, if you go to archive.org and you search like some of these old Mughal Persian textbooks, you'll find most of the PDFs on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, yeah. So, like, you can. Yeah, 
like with Kamran Mirza, yeah. who was given the Kabul and that area to rule. Yeah. Uh, he had been fighting his brother for off and on for years. I, I mean, in what? The, in the end, he was blinded by uh, under the Humayun's orders. I, I, that's only that's only after he comes back and takes India. That was after. Yeah. Even before he fled. They were fights. There were disagreements. There wasn't a full-fledged battle. Oh. Yeah. But there were definitely disagreements. And even Kamran Mirza, when, 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 when Humayun does come to power, there is a disagreement. And Kamran Mirza actually marches from Kabul into Lahore. And then Humayun says that you will actually, because he had just received Kabul and Kandahar, but Humayun, we still have that letter in this book called Mirat Sekandari, where Humayun says that you can, um, if, you, if you seize, you will also receive the jurisdiction in the Jagirdari of Punjab and Lahore, and he stops there and he returns back to Kabul. And in fact, he writes a Farsi Qasida in praise of Humayun. Yeah. Yeah. He was not one of them. He was among the ones who went to Actually, he lived out his life back up there. Are you... I... I would disagree with that. So um, he had, so Bahadur Shah Zafar had about 18 kids from, from many, many different wives, and then he had some grandsons. Um, it, it, it is possible that, but I, from my knowledge is that, from, 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 from my knowledge, none of, them, none of them went to Rangoon. It is possible that perhaps instead of Mirza Abu Bakr, it might have been Mirza, not been Mirza Jawan Bakr, but yeah. I would just have a comment about the, the, yeah, yeah, that's, 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 yeah, 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 and, um, I, 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 I mentioned that, right, Dara Shuko is buried there, also, one of Humayun's brothers also buried there, too, yeah, 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 so, sorry, I didn't, sorry, I didn't have a whole list of everyone who's buried in the tomb, there's, there's, like, dozens of graves, yeah, 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 yeah. A friend of mine by the name Humayun was in the Zamuddin. Hmm. He was staying there in Jamaat. He mentioned this to me that he came out, probably wanted to have some tea or something. And somebody who was probably new to that area said, Can you tell me where Humayun's tomb is? Unfortunately, yeah. Unfortunately, again, it's it, it's sad that um, you know, I would again just I, I mentioned one of the Hassan that was uh, when his father visited the tomb, um, when he came from Farangay Mahal, you know, in the early 1900s. Uh, there's like a very deep knowledge of the Mughal political past that seems to be lost by the 1970s and 1980s. And obviously, you can sort of blame state history projects within both India and Pakistan. That sort of leads to this amnesia. Um, of the Mughal past, but you know, inshallah, that's why we're here, and you know, just to just to create more awareness and more knowledge, inshallah, you know, um, especially for us, they seem since G. Yeah, 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 because we um, we 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 do before in 1992, before they destroyed Ayudhya, we there, there was an inscription, but there is no reference, um, and many many historians, especially in, at Aligarh and Osmania, have done that there was no Ram Temple, you know, before before that, yeah. It is, it is possible. I've thought about that because that suffix chi is, is, is a Turkish suffix. It just means wala, like afyun chi, you know, bawara chi, etc. Um, I'm, I'm not necessarily sure about mir chi. It, it might have been that like mir means leader from amir or king. 
and chi is just one you know one of the king and that perhaps the, the mughals like spice more but yeah i'm i'm not 100 percent sure but yeah no good good question it's and it's important to to think about how um how urdu is that medley of all these different languages and it has that effect you know when iqbal gives a speech in allahabad in 1930 i mean he he talks about um one of the beauties about islam and hindustan is that um it was able to navigate so many different cultures and ethnicities and still present you know um itself like very very beautifully yeah so everything in india is all the civilization right yeah but there are many different ethnicities present in india yeah so could you please maybe like on your knowledge elaborate what ethnicities are present what parts of india have what kind of ethnicities i mean there's like no, more than 500 ethnicities in india if not more yeah in you know same number of languages too so that's yeah, I mean, in India, it's like really interesting because this idea of like qawm, milla, qabila, zat, all of these words, caste, like all of that is used, you know, like you can be Punjabi and Rajput at the same time, right? And and be, you know, a Shastri. You can be a Punjabi, Rajput, Shastri in, in Indian Punjab today, you know, and you can have all these different sort of layers. But as Muslims, um, the the major classes where you have you have the Chughatai family, which is the Turkic family, you have the Sheikhs, you have the Sayyids, um, you know, you have the Iranis, you have the Rohila Pashtuns, you have different types of Pashtuns, right? So, um, you know, you have the Yusuf Zais, you have the Muhammad Zais, and, um, you know, so in every ethnicity, there's like different classes. You have the Samarkandi Turanis, you have the Bukhari Turanis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so, a lot, you know, a lot to think about, yeah. So um, that's actually I would highly disagree with that. So um, there was a historian at Aligarh in 1965 who who did a study based on you know different uh, agricultural land revenue records, the percentage of Muslims from Peshawar to Dhaka, including Kashmir, places like Kashmir, um, you know, uh, Bengal, Punjab was about four to five percent. By partition, it's about forty percent. Right, uh, I believe it's about 40, 40 42 percent by partition when uh, uh, Radcliffe draws a line between West and East Pakistan and Hindustan. So, which is which is absurd to think about because before Babur, there were about four hundred years of Muslim political rule. That means only five percent of Muslims converted. And you have to remember that India is a square miles and in terms of population is a is a land as big as Europe in terms of square miles and population. So, in just three hundred years, the fact they converted forty percent of people into Islam. I don't. I don't know of any. Not. Not even. Not even Iran. Not Palestine. Not Syria. Not Egypt converted as fast as as uh, Indians did under the Mughals. And uh, for for more research on conversion rates in Iran and Spain, one of my undergrad pro professors, um, uh, uh, he has a book called um, "Conversion Rates in Muslim Spain and Iran," and I would highly, highly urge you to see that it took about four or five centuries for Spain to become majority Muslim, and Iran it took about six, seven centuries. Uh, but other cities, I mean, the Ottomans ruled Istanbul for 500 years, and only after the population exchange that Mustafa Kemal Ataturk did in 1924 did Istanbul become majority Muslim. Otherwise, it was 45% by 1925. And only when Mustafa Kemal Ataturk sends all the Greeks to Greece, and the Greeks and all the Muslims to Istanbul in 1925, does Istanbul become majority Muslim city. But again, Delhi was the same thing. Delhi, by partition, was about 37, 38%. That's why it didn't go to Pakistan. Although we were, we were close. <laughs> Uh, but a lot of these places, I mean, Amritsar was a 45% Muslim city, Lahore was only 60%, Calcutta was 45%, Dhaka was barely 62%, so, you know, these places are very fluent, yeah. Irfan Habib. Oh, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he did, he did, he doesn't teach though. He's a, he's an emeritus professor. Yeah. Um, you know, there was, uh, when you say forceful, what do you mean, what do you mean forceful? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's really interesting, right? Because if, if there was forceful conversion, then why is majority of India still non-Muslim today? Right? Like, why did they only, um, from, huh? Why did they only force Yeah, you know? Um, and, and because remember, even up until Aurangzeb's era, the majority of the population is still only 10% Muslim. Uh, and what are, the, what are the majority of Muslim areas, right? Bengal, Punjab, Kashmir, Sindh, Baluchistan, right? And then obviously Khyber Pakhtunwa, but that was always majority Muslim even before the Mughals because of, it was close to Afghanistan. So only five regions became, and that was only 60%. And uh, I think the only interesting region is Bengal because Sindh, Baluchistan, and Punjab are all connected to you know, Muslim lands. But Bengal is the only region in India that becomes majority Muslim. Although Hyderabad, just the city of Hyderabad, by 1947 was majority Muslim. Not Andhra Pradesh or the Nizam Sultanate, but just the city of Hyderabad itself was majority Muslim. Uh, but obviously that changed after partition because a lot of Muslim families left and then Hindus came in from the south. So, yeah. I know uh, Akbar has been criticized of We'll talk about that next next week. Yeah, all Akbar questions next week, inshallah. Yeah, because that's that's a lot, a lot, a lot to talk about. Yeah, because so he ruled for fifty five years and did more ghazwas than any other king besides Aurangzeb. So uh, remember, he 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 doubles the the political and all the kingdoms he invades are Hindu kingdoms. You know, so there's a lot, a lot. Again, people don't people don't read Farsi, and none of these books have been translated into Urdu besides one or two, and so. Why, why, will every, why will anyone have, you know, imagine um, if people are talking about early Islamic history and they can't read Arabic. If you can't read Tabari or Baladuri or Siru A'la bin Nubala or even, you know, even more weaker sources like Waqidi, why would you be able to talk about early Islamic history? So just like the same thing, you know, if you don't read Farsi and you don't know these books, why would you be able to talk about Mughal history intellectually? You know, and that's, that's important. Language is important. I mean, if, imagine if someone said that, like, I understand American history and they've never read an English book in their life, or they can't read English. The, 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 but that's a similarity, right? The Mughals didn't write any Urdu books. The only two Urdu books that I know written by Mughal kings is one by Shah Alam II. He, it's also not Urdu, it's in, in, in Braj Bahasha, and then Bahadur Shah Zafar II has a divan, obviously, in Urdu. But you know, everything is written in Persian, Turkish, and Arabic. So yeah, sorry, I've taken a lot of you guys' time. Jazakallah khair. Any final questions? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I spoke about that in the beginning, right? Like the different sources I took it from Humayun Nama, the Akbar Nama, uh, Mirate Ahmadi. Um, and then also looking at modern historians and how they deal with those sources too are really important. Um, so, yeah. Jazakallah khair. Ya Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Allahumma salli ala sayyidina Muhammad wa barik wa sallam Allahumma dhakkirna minhu ma nasina wa alimna minhu ma jahilna وطهر وطهر انفسنا اللهم اللهم ات نفوسنا تقواها وزكيها انت خير من زكاها انت وليها ومولاها برحمتك يا ارحم الراحمين جزاك الله خير جزاك thank you so much for having me thank you so much yeah